Texas some boring subjects. Understand the risk to our country. Freedom brings people together. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. Why is a deck so expensive? What is inflation? If you're new to libertarianism, then you, you're going to hear a lot about inflation right now. And a lot of uh, scary things, and the federal debt comes involved, and what is the Federal Reserve, and what are we talking about? Uh, now listen, I didn't do well in economics. I don't know about Harry, but I, didn't, I did poorly. So we have a, a real expert explaining inflation to us today. His name is Alex Salter. So please join us, and we will explain inflation to you and tell you why lumber prices are so high after this message. Warning, this show is for adults by semi-adults, so the language is sometimes strong and offensive. Uh, I don't know what I said. Uh. Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. Our goal is to help you sound smarter while talking to your friends. If you struggle to understand politics, we explain it from an independent libertarian point of view. With all of the irreverence it deserves, we toss out the screaming heads, put people before political parties, and give context to the news to make you think. Now, here's our host, Chris Spangle, a 15-year veteran of politics and media. Thank you so much, Fancy Voice Man. My name is Chris Spangle, and before we start, we always thank our Patreon members, our Wall Plus members. They're the ones who make the entire We Are Libertarians podcast network operate. We're up to 13 shows about to launch Profiles on Liberty. Find that in your directories and subscribe now and listen to uh, The Prelude. And they help us pay all the bills. And we want to especially thank our $100 a month members, John Pusillo, Casey Feldposh, Lars Nordskog, Jake Edel, Matthew Durbin, Jeff Bennett, Reinhold, Christy Avery, and Jason Doolittle. And thank you to every Wall Plus subscriber. You can join now and get commercial-free episodes of The Chris Spangle Show, the entire back catalog, and you get bonus shows like The History of Modern Politics. I just have finished up recording two episodes of that, um, and I don't know how my voice is going to last between two episodes of that an hour, a show of this, and then two pat-downs after this. So we're going to see how it goes by uh, 4 o'clock today. Um, but I am excited. Uh, we we have our uh, – Reinhold has uh, – he may be delayed. He may not be here. We don't know. But with us, as always, is Harry Price. Harry, how are you? Going good, going good. And uh, also joining us is Alex Salter. Do you like Alexander or Alex? I should have asked before. Am, and am I saying Salter correctly? <laughs> Last name is perfect, and Alex is just fine. Thanks, Chris. All right, great. So Alexander Salter is an economics professor in the Rawls College of Business at Texas Tech University and the Comparative Economics Research Fellow at TTU's Free Market Institute. He's the author of more than 150 academic and popular articles, and uh, one of which was just published by the National Review. There's no need to panic over inflation, and that'll be in the show notes. He is also the co-author of Money and the Rule of Law, Generality and Predictability in Monetary Institutions from the Cambridge University Press, a number one bestseller in Amazon on macroeconomics. You will find all of that in our show notes. Be sure to get his book. Um, so I think it's safe to say that Alex um, is a much better person to explain inflation to us than you and i harry oh yeah just a little bit (laughs) (laughs) i I, I want to i've got yeah because i've got my money with crypto and honey 
you know, <laughs> right. Your honey account for your, for, for cheaper Amazon and discounts on Pizza Hut is full, but you don't know anything about inflation. So I guess I want to start. Um, I heard you on Breaking uh, Boundaries with Brad Palumbo, a friend of the program, and you did a great job explaining Bidenomics. And I want to touch on that, too. But I want to start with the basic question of this episode, Alex. I want to build a deck. Why the heck is lumber so expensive? What's happening? Great place to start. So whenever you see high goods prices, there's at least one of two things happening and maybe two things happening at the same time. High demand, low supply. In the case of lumber, both of those things are going on right now. So let's rewind to the darkest days of the pandemic. Production of pretty much everything has gone down because of individual caution, because of physical distancing, because of various voluntary and government-mandated programs. Uh, Lumber was one of those things. Now, at the same time, through government policies like expansionary monetary policy by the Federal Reserve, direct checks, the demand side of the economy was kept reasonably robust. So you have dwindling supply of goods and services. That tends to drive up their price. High demand for goods and services. That tends to drive up their price. Right. Everybody's sitting at home. They realize all of a sudden, hey, I'm spending a lot of time at home. Maybe I want to remodel. Maybe I want to build a new deck. Well, guess what? Lumber production has gone way down, but demand is still high. The only way for markets to work when those two things are true is that prices go up, up, up. And lumber is really a good uh, archetype or example of what's going on in markets right now as a whole as we're seeing inflation pick up. Mm. Whenever you see increases in prices, not just of specific goods, but goods in general, That's your indication that there's too much money chasing too few goods. So right now, production conditions on the supply side are just beginning to pick back up. That's why we're seeing some robust economic recovery. But at the same time, demand conditions, purchasing power is outstripping uh, productive capacity. So expect prices to continue going up as long as that continues to be the case. That being said, I'm not too worried that this is going to be any sort of a long-run phenomenon. Yeah, we'll talk about that because... um... You know, we're as libertarians required to uh, talk about buying gold and the end is nigh. Um, and you have a it's in our contract. Yeah, right. Yeah. You sign you sign the non-aggression principle pledge at the LP and like they're like, you will also scare the crap out of people. Um, but I mean, looking back, did you, you probably follow like economic discussions a lot more than than we do here. But like did. I'm not a genius. OK, but I would just think that if you shut down production and supply and then pour a bunch of free money into people's bank accounts and increase demand that you'd you'd end up in the situation we're in was was anybody other than like maybe libertarians last year saying this is a really bad idea and we could end up with inflation there were some voices and libertarians are doing a victory lap right now, and many rightly so. Uh, that being said, I feel uh, honesty compels me to admit that we libertarians have predicted nine out of the last two inflationary episodes. <laughs> yeah, so, like, like we said. I mean, it's always, you know. In hey, terms of uh, it's almost, track record, right? Right, yeah. It's like if you just always predict the worst is going to happen, then eventually you're going to be right. Um, but I guess I, I don't – and maybe this is uh, goes back to Hayek's knowledge problem, and, and there is no central planner that can best – lay out the future but is it often the case that you have something like this take place and then later we find out the consequences are severe and we should have seen the obvious but the lawmakers that are in charge didn't 
We could be looking at that. Uh, the Twitter, the Twitter verse is ripe with comparisons right now to the 1970s, right? A rehash of Jimmy Carter's administration when uh, economic production wasn't doing so hot, but at the same time we had high inflation and high unemployment. The reason that I don't think those comparisons are apt is that actually right now unemployment's not too bad. The economy's picking up. Yeah, we have inflation in the 5% year over year range, but that's not catastrophic. I actually think that the Biden administration is catching too much heat for the current inflationary episode that we're experiencing. I would say it's more due to the Federal Reserve and their extensive uh, expansionary monetary policies, which were pursued in the earlier days of the pandemic. Now, for about a year now, what the Fed has done is it stopped paying banks what's called interest on excess reserves. Following the 2008 financial crisis, one of the things that the Fed did was pay banks not to lend out all the new money that the Fed created. The idea was to shore up banks' balance sheets without causing too much inflation. Well, you can do that, right? But that's going to diminish the ability of the new money created by the Fed to actually have a stimulative effect on the economy. So in the early days of COVID, the Fed thought, you know what? We want to fire on cylinders. We want to massively increase the money supply, and we want to remove this contractionary mechanism. So they stopped doing that. They've been printing a lot. Uh, the money supply has been going up pretty precipitously. And I think that that's more what's going on than the Biden stimulus pro uh, programs or direct checks. Don't get me wrong. That has an effect. But I still agree with Milton Friedman. Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. So that's where we should be looking first. All right. So there's you'll never hear me defend the Biden administration aside from that. So. <laughs> right. OK. So I, I you know, you see memes on Facebook, like 28 percent of all dollars have been printed in the last year. Um, what does that mean? What can you explain inflation? Like if I were to show you that meme of all the dollars in you existence in American history were printed last year, like, so what? Right. Like, what does that matter? I mean, you just print money and then you have more of it. What are the consequences of that? Why should I care? That's, right. That's the takeaway. So here's the place that we need to start. Imagine that the Federal Reserve tomorrow printed $10 trillion and then buried it in the ground. What's going to happen to prices? Nothing, right? It's not just enough to print money. The money has to actually circulate throughout the economy. And that's one thing that didn't happen after all the rounds of quantitative easing back in 2008. The Fed created a whole bunch of new liquidity but then it just sat in banks, banks accounts at the Fed. Mm. Why? Because again, the central bank paid them not to lend it out. Well, it's not doing that anymore. So it's not just enough for printed money to create inflation. You need the money to circulate. You need it actually going throughout the economy, pushing up goods and services prices. So really, the money supply by itself is an insufficient explanation of what's happening to prices. You can say that roughly 30% of all dollars that have ever been printed have been printed in the past year. Okay, by itself, that indicates that there might be some inflation coming. But we also need to look at how fast that money is being spent, what economists call the velocity of money, the rate of turnover of the average dollar. Basically, money supply plus monetary turnover, that's how you get inflation. That's how you get a boost to the demand side economy that drives up prices in general, not just for specific goods and services. Okay, so they print $6 trillion extra. You, you spend – so – as I understand it, and correct me if my facts are wrong here, but that the Fed prints last year in the wake of the pandemic six trillion extra. We also have a six trillions worth of stimulus. Um, but that six trillion that they printed, did they did they like slowly leak it out? Did they just throw it out into the economy? Did they have banks hold on to it? What did the Fed do last year 
um, with that extra printed money? Sure. So the usual way it works is the Fed buys assets, government bonds, mortgage-backed securities, that sort of thing, and credits the account of their counterparty with newly created money. And the idea is when the Fed does that, it's actually creating deposits in the banking system. Okay. Right. So all that newly created money will sit in bank accounts unless people start spending it, loaning it out, et cetera. And that's where the slashing on the interest of excess reserves comes in. So I think the Fed's balance sheet over the course of the COVID crisis went from about $4 trillion to $8 trillion. So you could look at that and say there's been about $4 trillion of new monetary creation. We're still in the area of about $100 billion to $120 billion uh, worth of government bond purchases per month. Mm-hmm. I think we really need to ask, it's not just about what's going on with the money supply, the most narrow measure of the money supply, right? That liquidity that's actually in the, balance, uh, the banking system, but whether banks are actually loaning it out. And we can tell by the broader measures of the money supply that they are. So that's why we're starting to see this inflationary uptick. And all the fiscal stuff that the last days of the Trump administration and the Biden administration, that has an effect. But I think that that's ultimately in the, in the passenger seat. The Fed is in the driver's seat when it comes to price hikes. Okay, so essentially they, they give the money to banks. And then the banks, then now that they're lending it out and they're using that money, that's why we're starting to see some prices increase. Um, you know, to, to get a PPP loan, for instance, you'd have to go to a bank. I mean, does, the, does some of the PPP stuff, I don't know if that, that plays into the cash reserves and some of that. Was that part of the problem here as well? I think that those were secondary. Those weren't really newly money. Those weren't uh, money creation programs. Those are actually something much more interesting and have done badly, much more destructive. Those programs were about allocating credit, right? So if you look at textbook monetary policy, you could call that liquidity policy. What it's trying to do is increase the supply of the economy's most liquid asset, namely money, right? And ideal monetary policy would do that without affecting how the market allocates resources and goods and services. Right? Okay. But what a lot of what the Fed did, especially since the COVID crisis did, when it started lending money directly to large corporations, when it started loaning money to state and municipal governments, that's direct credit allocation. There's a specific scarce resource credit that the Fed is extending to these entities on better than market terms, more favorable than market terms. Well, when you affect the price of credit, which is interest, You affect the allocation of resources, right? That's economics 101. Prices guide resource allocation. So the Federal Reserve is going way beyond its monetary mandate here and and doing things. Now, let's be honest, Congress asked them to do it. But nonetheless, it's actually pretty dangerous because you have the central bank through these programs picking winners and losers. And furthermore, they're doing so in a way that really doesn't matter for the integrity of the financial system. Right. There was a lot of talk back in 2008 about the Fed extending credit to important financial institutions so that they didn't fail and cause a cascading series of failures that crashed the global financial system. Well, this time, the Federal Reserve is loaning money to companies like Berkshire Hathaway and Coca-Cola. Mm. Now, I'm a pretty smart guy, but I must have missed the part of the monetary transmission mechanism that involved cola. So <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure I didn't get that in my graduate macro. Yeah, classes, I mean, so I'm gonna have to think about that a little more. Libertarians are screaming about moral hazard and moral hazard is, you know, it's we talk about precedents a lot on this show. That's why we were largely anti-Trump. It's like you break these precedents. They don't go back. You don't you, you get more chaos. It gets worse and other people do it better in the future. Um, and when you look back at the moral hazard of 2008 and just cranking out money and you know 
quantitative easing. I don't know if we want to wade into all that stuff, but when you look at 2008 and the bailouts and what that created, it seems to me, Alex, that once we got to this crisis, it's open season. That you know, every time we now have a crisis, it, it's not going to be 700 billion like TARP. It's going to be seven, eight, nine trillion. Um, and the moral hazard and, and the precedent of 2008 is is just i mean the the hogs are at the trough now i mean is there what do you what will it take to kind of i mean can we put that genie back in the bottle and what does that new precedent say about our future as americans yeah isn't it wild that just a decade ago everybody was wringing their hands over a 787 billion relief package now that's chump change alex half got got spent and most of uh, all of it got paid back (laughs) let alone now (laughs) (laughs) So to answer your question, yeah, I think we have to talk about moral hazard. And that was a huge problem in 2008, but really it's been a problem for decades. Go back to the 70s, go back to the 80s. Even economists who work for the Fed noted at the time, look, every time that there's been even the threat of a major financial institution failing, the Federal Reserve, sometimes in concert with Treasury, has stepped in to make sure that the taxpayer is underwriting those losses. So we've had moral hazard baked into the system for decades, right? The financial system has been told by Uncle Sam, you know, here's our credit card, go and play in Vegas, Mm. right? If you make a bunch of money, you can keep those winnings. If not, we'll cover your losses. Well, what's any rational financial executive going to do if that's the the deal they're being offered? Of course, they're going to load up on risk, right? Don't hate the player, hate the game. It's the government officials who are creating really terrible rules of the game that are to blame for the fact that we've institutionalized too big to fail on moral hazard. That came to a course in 2008. It got even bigger in 2020. Uh, the chickens are home to roost. We're going to have to find a way to put the genie back in the bottle. And I'm worried that the only way that that's going to happen is the next time we're going to have to ha- we're going to have to allow an important financial institution actually to fail mm. and to say publicly, look, we're just not stepping into this. It's time for the market to sort itself out. Um, but frankly, I'm not sure that the political system has the discipline necessary to make that work anymore. Zero chance. Um, but l- like what looking back at Goldman Sachs or, you know, Bear Stearns or one of these one of these big banks, um, what 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 is the consequences of of a, a bank like that failing? What what happens if Chase Bank fails and you don't step in like you did in 2008 or you don't back up? you know, in this big crisis last year, I mean, what are, what are the, the short-term and long-term people will call them pain points as if it isn't people's real lives that would be affected. But like, give us an idea of if, you know, Ron Paul was president and Tom Woods has head of the, the federal reserve at that moment, like what, what happens, right? That's a great question. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the, one of the previous fed chairs, Ben Bernanke. So before he became a Fed governor and then Fed chair, he actually did a lot of academic work on why the Great Depression was so great. And his answer was the major bank failures that we saw in the United States during the darkest days of the Great Depression in the earlier part of the 20th century were bad for reasons other than the money supply collapsing, right? So Milton Friedman comes along in 1962, 1964 with Anna Uh, writes his classic work on the monetary history of the United States, convinces the world that the reason that the Great Depression was so great is because the money supply tanked, right? It was a monetary problem that was mismanaged. 
The next generation of research that Bernanke was leading says, actually, there's a separate mechanism beyond that. When a bank fails, we're losing something more than just a money supply transmitter. Banks have relationships with each other. They have dealings with each other. There are all these interlinking effects between balance sheets. So even if you could keep the money supply perfectly, we need to worry about banks failing for reasons independently of the money supply. And so he brought that paradigm with him to the Federal Reserve and to his 2008 policy response. In a way, you can look at Bernanke as one of the most consistent Fed chairs based on his earlier academic work, right? He did exactly what his 1980s academic paper said he was going to do, which is stabilize the credit channel. Mm. Now, I think he went too far, and I think that he was frankly disingenuous in some of his public remarks uh, where he played up the commensurability of his policies with sort of, you know, best practices for a lender of last resort. But really, we shouldn't be surprised by what Bernanke's Fed did in 2008. The problem, of course, is that even if Bernanke is right about the way that the financial system works, we can't trust banks not to take those incentives and run with it, right? We're back in Vegas with the credit card that belongs to somebody else. So in a world of imperfect bankers and in a world of highly imperfect political officials, it still might be the the case that the least bad thing that we can do is let them fail and try and sort it out. Because if we get moral hazard, we're actually sowing the seeds for future crises when we bail out the actors from this crisis. Yeah, I mean, you watch The Big Short and nobody learned anything. There were no real consequences from The Big Short. Harry, go ahead. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, so... what? uh, you mute it. Oh, I am? Oh, I'm sorry. Chris? Sorry about that. Uh, I, there we go. I, I had a technical issue. Um, Harry, what were you going to say? I'm just saying you, you're muted. Oh, all right. Well, moving on then. Alex, so let's talk about the, the long-term consequences of that because you're never going to get uh, just, in my view, you're not going to get, like, listen, Trump was the most libertarian president of all time, I was told. But when... <laughs> Alex and Harry are laughing hysterically, but when when the chips were down, like he's mad at Nancy Pelosi because the stimulus wasn't big enough. You know, he's wanting the Fed to do more. You know, he's shutting down. He's initiating lockdowns with his CDC. Like, you know, Republicans were in charge and look at what happened. Basically, exactly what would have happened if Hillary Clinton had been in charge. Um, So like, I, I don't expect that there's going to be a political solution to this stuff. So let's talk about long-term consequences i want to go back to short-term consequences of inflation in a moment but i think let's stick with the long-term consequences of not changing our monetary policy um what does the future look like for americans if we continue just to internalize that debt and and grow the debt uh, obligations of the united states government Nothing good, I would say. Now, again, I have to preface this with the standard disclaimer, right? We libertarians have predicted debt crises year over year over year, and as yet they haven't happened. Okay, fine. I've personally been wrong about that. That doesn't mean that it's a good idea to keep on gambling. Right now, the only reason that we can get away with our continued cycle of public debt and currency debasement is because we have ultra low interest rates by historical standards, Now, that's not something that the Federal Reserve can actually control in the long run. People say this thing like the Fed has kept interest rates low for a decade. It doesn't have that kind of power. It can keep interest rates low for a year, maybe 18 months, but interest rates are determined in a global market for capital. Excuse me. A global market for capital. 
And even the Fed with all of its power is just one player in that market. So if interest rates are low and stay low for like a decade, that's your indication that something is going on with real resources in the capital allocation market. So as long as we have very, very low interest rates, right, high supplies of capital relative to the demands to to borrow it and use it, okay, maybe we can continue to get away with trillion dollar deficits and six trillion dollar budgets like the one that the president just proposed. But what's going to happen if economic growth and higher capital demand starts to put upward pressure on interest rates? Then we're going to be in really big trouble. Explain that. Put that like in like I don't know what you meant. (laughs) Yeah, sure. So interest rates determined by the supply of capital interacting with the demand for capital. Economic growth tends to raise the demand for capital and so push up interest rates, right? You can think about it like consumers see their their permanent lifetime income as higher, right? They think that they're going to be wealthier in the future, so they want to borrow more. Uh, Investors want to borrow more so they can make uh, capital investments and projects that are going to yield cash flows in the future, Everybody wants more scarce capital. The only way to make that market work and clear, right, to make sure that the amount of capital that we have to borrow is in line with our demand for it is for the price of capital, the interest rate, to go up. And that usually tends to happen with economic growth, right? Interest rates are largely pro-cyclical. Output goes up, interest rates go up, right? Output goes down, interest rates go down. So if we're about to enter into a long economic expansion, especially with all the demand-side stimulus that we've seen, I think interest rates are going to start to go up. If that happens, there's going to be enormous pressure on the fiscal side of things, right? Because the cost of borrowing and the amount of the government budget that we're going to have to devote to repaying government debt is just going to go up and up. And you know what that means? There's going to be increasing pressure on the Federal Reserve to de facto monetize those deficits. Okay, so let me let me see if I can sort this out in a, in a different way, just to, to make sure that I'm clear on it, Okay. Harry, I'm, I promise I'm not dumb, okay? I'm just simple. Um, but, all right, so you're saying that economic growth, new jobs, new businesses, new, new opportunities, new, you know, you know, people buying, you expand that, people are buying more stuff, you know, there's more jobs, that's economic growth and expansion, and that raises interest rates, okay, and then, so we basically just have to constantly keep a cycle of growth going because if there's we- something to that. Yeah. So uh, first of all, I apologize when I get excited and get really into the topic I'm talking about, I tend to slip into nerdy economists. No, no, mode. no, no, so no. You're, you're like, okay. <laughs> my, I totally expected that. My job is to make sure that we're, you know, the, the people who've never heard of the fed are kind of are, are right there, but I just want to make sure that I understand it completely. So if, if we, what what's the danger right the the economy stops growing or the interest rates get too high or what what's right. the, what's the danger point that we ought to be watching for all right let me try putting it this way interest rates going up also affects the price at which uncle sam can borrow okay right because if investors are getting higher interest rates from like private corporate bonds or something the only reason that they're going to be willing to loan money to uncle sam is if uncle sam is paying a higher interest rate too Ah. That raises the cost of government borrowing. And if interest rates go go up too much, especially if interest rates start to exceed the growth rate of the economy, then the national debt, the deficits that compound into the national debt can just keep on expanding and expanding and expanding without limit. And that's a really, really dangerous scenario. We're not there yet, right? I just want to be very clear. We're not there yet. As long as interest rates stay low, we won't ever get there. 
But you do have to worry that as economic growth picks up, people want to borrow more, people want to spend more. As those pressures on interest rates start to put up capital prices, the government's going to have to pay more for the privilege of borrowing money. And if that interest rate gets too high, especially if it exceeds the growth rate of the economy, we could very quickly find ourselves in a really unpleasant debt spiral. And that's pretty nasty. All right. Let's just get into it. What does that mean? What does that look like for your average person yeah. when we get into a nasty debt spiral? I mean, because when you say, like, the government needs to, to borrow more money to fund this or that, and they need to start paying things back, I hear higher taxes first. But what does that mean for my banking transactions and my regular life? What would that look like? I think you hit the nail on the head. It's going to have to mean taxes go up. We've sort of deluded ourselves into the idea that we can continue to spend an excess of revenues and not have taxes go up. But as economists always say, don't be daft, D-A-F-T, deficits are future taxes. Mm. So far, we've been able to avoid that, but it can't happen forever. The only reason you can run a deficit today is because the market is expecting you to have surplus resources tomorrow to pay it back. So if we start finding ourselves in this really unpleasant rising debt scenario, especially if the national debt to gross domestic product ratio, basically the ratio of what we owe to what we produce in the given year gets too high. The only way we're going to be able to make up the difference is with higher taxes. That's going to reduce economic growth. That's going to kill jobs. That's going to be terrible for ordinary Americans. Sounds like the thing that Bernie Madoff went to jail for, Harry. Yeah. So when do we buy our wheelbarrows? I just, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. So you guys don't have yours yet. Yeah, oh, right. Man, you go. No, I'm just kidding. So yeah, I mean, libertarians talk all the time. Let's let's enter. Let's put on our, our Ron Paul. Let me get down my Ron Paul 2008 button off of the wall here and put it on. And um, like, uh, ex- what is the danger of hyperinflation? Not like the danger, but what is our danger presently? for things like hyperinflation. Could that happen in America? It could happen anywhere. I don't think it's likely at all right now. What I think is the most likely scenario is that the inflation that we're seeing right now is actually going to be transitory. Mm. It's going to slow down. The growth rate of the economy is going to, be, is going to stay higher than the uh, rate that Uncle Sam will have to pay to borrow. And as long as we're there, we're pretty much okay. I think that the dangers are going to be to actually rein in a bunch of the new powers that the Federal Reserve acquired over the course of the COVID crisis, as well as making sure that politicians don't take advantage of the fact that the Federal Reserve is now more politically compromised than arguably it's been for 70 years to use the Federal Reserve's balance sheet to finance the government, right? Because politicians aren't dumb. They know that people like receiving government stuff, but don't like paying for it in the form of taxes. Well, if you want to keep on giving them stuff, but you don't want to tax them to pay for it, what's another thing that you can do to pay for it? Well, the Fed has a printing press. You can use the inflation tax. And as long as you keep that reasonable, right, people won't be too mad at you. But what you're going to do is politicize resource allocation in the financial sector. And that could really have a dragging effect on economic growth. It could slow the rate at which jobs are created. It could slow the rate at which ordinary Americans see their incomes, their salaries rise year over year. I think sclerosis rather than breakdown is our problem for the next five to 10 years. All right. So the, basically the government is picking winners and losers and they're never going to do a good job at that. And so the wrong people get money. You make, you know, sort of like Solyndra, if you remember that, where they, you know, we're going to put all this money into this thing uh, that is green jobs, green energy, and then it just goes completely bust and doesn't work. 
Um, and you've wasted all, you've wasted more money than if the markets had just had handled that. So, um, so that sclerosis looks like what, like, give me some examples of in the next five to 10 years, how you see that playing out and, uh, and how that would affect the average person. So I think what we're going to see over the next couple of years is we're actually going to continue to have a pretty robust recovery from the COVID crisis. After that, though, especially if half of what President Biden is proposing gets through Congress, I think what we're going to see is lower growth rates than we would like. Mm. We're expecting real income per person to increase to between two and two and a half percent per year, which is about equal to historical trends. Push that down to one and a half to two. Now, that might not seem a lot, right? That's only half a percent per year. But if you actually sit down and do the math on that, compounded over five to 10 years, that basically means that ordinary Americans are missing out on something like five to $10,000 per decade of real take-home pay and what they would get relative to the scenario where we didn't have this massive irresponsible growth of government. So I think that ordinary Americans should be concerned. It's oftentimes hard to see because a lot of the economic action is in the scenario that didn't happen, right? What the economy would have done if it weren't overregulated, if Uncle Sam weren't overspending and overborrowing. So I think that what we're just setting ourselves up for is pretty lackluster economic performance. And if that doesn't sound like the worst scenario you could imagine, I got news for you, it's not. But there's no reason to put up with it when we don't have to. We don't have to have a sclerotic economy. We could have a great economy. We just need to regulate less. We need to spend less. We need to borrow less. And we need to let markets do what they do best, which is create wealth for the American people. So essentially, it's like Japan with their 30 years of stagflation, where you just have a lost generation of people who don't have opportunity. And, you know, I saw this chart the other day um, that I cannot show because I just had to reset my entire computer. Um, But I'll put it in the show notes. so my screen share is broken, but you know it's the generational wealth gap and the distribution of household wealth. And you know, right now the the baby boomers are carrying fifty three percent of the generational wealth, and millennials have five percent. Gen X is at twenty percent, and the and the silent generation, my grandparents still have fifteen percent. And so, you know, the chart for baby boomers starts really high and goes higher. You know, and then the millennials are like way down here and way down here. And so, and, and you, you know, my dad will be like, well, when I was in your age, or blah, 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 blah. And I go, yeah, but when you graduated high school in 1978, a house was $50,000 and a car was $5,000. You know, when I graduated in 2002, it was 120000 and 20000 Now it's 30000 But your, your income, my income has not kept pace with like the same a the same uh, dollar amount as my dad's did at the same age but the value of that dollar is much much lower than it was when he was comparatively at 37 and so that's we're we're just going to see an increasing of that over time i think that there are definite generational problems and especially younger people have a right to be angry at the same time i kind of worry that those slice of the pie charts might obscure what's going on So it's true that millennials, for example, have a pretty low share of generational wealth. But if you look at the absolute numbers of the wealth that they had compared to the generation that preceded them or the one before that, they actually have significantly more, right? The problem isn't that millennials don't have enough wealth. The problem is that the baby boomers have tons of it, 
right? And we libertarians know that wealth is not a zero-sum game, right? The economic pie is not fixed. It's grow, it can grow, everybody can have more, and a rising tide can lift all boats. That being said, I do think that young people have a right to be angry about the lack of opportunities that they have compared to what they deserve and what they're entitled to and what we could have reasonably expected the economy to deliver if we haven't overregulated, overspent for the better part of, I mean, really since the, since the turn of the millennium. I think that there are growing barriers to entry-level jobs. I think that there's been massive credential inflation, right? There's, there shouldn't be so many jobs that require college degrees and now master's degrees when those skills aren't actually being used on the job. Instead, you're just sort of seeing a general degradation of the value of a college degree and even sometimes graduate degrees, which is terrible, right? Because it basically means that young people are trapped in an educational arms race. They all have to spend time in school getting credentials up, right? getting their diplomas when they could be spending those years earning money, working, building human capital. So there are definitely problems and we should hold the political authorities that govern us, or at least purport to govern us, accountable for those problems. I don't think it's the end of the world, but I do think that you're going to see an increase in generational resentment. And you know what? Millennials aren't entirely wrong. Yeah, I mean, um, I've been I've been beating this drum for at least 15 years, Harry, um, making boomers like Reinhold mad. Yeah. Well, like, yeah, because like uh, this, there's even degrees or like a programs even in the IT field. They'll talk about, well, you need to have this this degree and this many years experience in like in virtual technology. And I was like, dude, when I went to college, people weren't using VMs like they were using now. They're, you know, that, yeah. like virtual machines. It's like I learned that in co- you know, I didn't learn that in college. I learned that on the job. So requiring someone to know that beforehand and ha- go to college for it, stupid. No, that's just a. You're putting an, uh, a goofy barrier when I'm when there's probably somebody who went uh, learned VM technology fresh out of high school, played with it for two years. Is probably more knowledgeable than the guy who went to uh, college for for four years. Oh yeah, when I was in, they just started the school of informatics at IEPY in 2002 to five, mm-hmm. and the the school admitted that by the time your four year degree was up, your 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 knowledge was useless because technology was changing so quickly. <laughs> Um, yeah. So I, I took two years of macromedia. Um, um, <laughs> yeah, macromedia. Who remembers macromedia? It's gone now. It's gone. Uh, so let's talk about the current. So your article, there's no need to panic about inflation. And so we don't need to hit the panic button on this inflation. And I think you, you've hit on something that I try to talk about a lot here is the politics of backlash keeps these extremes in check. You know, if one side tries to go too far, the other side just spanks it and tries to bring us back to the middle. And so, you know, even though our politics is so extreme, there's always like a, that, that pendulum effect, right? And so your argument is essentially is let's not we need to keep our eye on inflation, but as but it's kind of a good thing that it's happening now because it will trigger some action. There will be a public will to check Fed policy to fix some of these problems. I mean, um, is that you being hopeful? Is that based in history? Like, how, how did you arrive at that conclusion? And did I summarize it correctly? Yeah, I think you did. That's a great way of summarizing it. So I think there's two things going on there. One when we're actually having a little bit of inflation, it gets way harder for the Federal Reserve to preferentially allocate credit, to basically pick winners and losers. We're closer to the old school monetary operating framework than we've been since the 2008 financial crisis. And I don't think there's been any period of time where the Fed has ever been particularly good. That being said, 
it's been better in the past than it has been now. So I, for one, would like to see a little bit of trend inflation because that's actually going to make it harder for the Federal Reserve to get away with politicized resource allocation. We're basically going back to the playbook, as it were. And yesterday's playbook is less bad than the one that we've got today. Also, it's true that consumers really hate inflation. Now, you can argue that they really hate inflation because previous generations of consumers, households, I should say, kept a larger amount of their wealth in cash in yesteryear Mm. than they do today. And when you store your wealth in cash, guess what? Inflation is a really nasty tax. Uh, But even so, people don't like seeing prices go up, especially if they're going up faster than their wages. Right? There are many, many Americans that are going to see the prices for the goods and services they consume, lumber, gasoline, food, energy, go up before their compensation that they get in the workplace starts to go up. That's hard for them, right? That's a bummer. And so you could worry that for the classes of people that can afford to tie up wealth in a home, that have extensive financial investments, these are things that tend to go up in price when inflation happens. And so they tend to keep pace. Right? It's largely the unbanked, people on the left-hand side of the income distribution, the less fortunate who get hardest by inflation. And that's not good, right? We should care about that. We should have concern for the least among us. The only hope that we have is that there's this silver lining and that you have a critical mass of people in a voting coalition get mad enough about inflation that they demand that their officials discipline the Federal Reserve. So I think that that could happen, and uh, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that we might see it happen. So you've written a book, Money and the Rule of Law, Generality and Predictability in Monetary Institutions. Everybody should go pick it up. There will be a link in the show notes. Obviously, Alexander Salter understands all of this much better than if I had just done some research for a week and tried to explain it to you. So that's why we wanted to have him here. Um, you got to know your limits on what you can explain. I know politics, but I don't know economics. Um, so, you know, how do we – you've got some ideas in the book about, you know, fixing the lawlessness of monetary policy and and adding some rules. So when we finally get to that point where people are ready to check the Federal Reserve, what are some options? How do we do that? Great question. So what I and my co-authors, Dan Smith at Middle Tennessee State University and Pete Becky at George Mason University, what we argue for in the book is that in order for monetary policy to be both effective and lawful, the Federal Reserve must be forced to follow a rule. What do I mean by a rule? Congress needs to be more specific about the goals of monetary policy. Right now, the Federal Reserve is mandated to pursue full employment, stable prices, and moderate long-run interest rates. That's far too vague. We think that there needs to be something much more specific in place in order to discipline the monetary authority so we have a concrete metric against which to compare central bank performance right? Because when you have a vague mandate, you can always offer vague excuses for why you've done what you've done. If we gave them a concrete price level target or an inflation target, right? You got to make inflation 2% in every period. Congress says so, no deviating from it. Then it's much easier to discipline the monetary authority. Now, we don't actually argue in that book for any one rule over another. And we fully concede that there is such a thing as a bad enough rule that it's, it's such a bad rule, you could, you could think of a really bad rule, that it's worse than what we've got now. Nobody objects to that. But we think that we understand macroeconomics as a science well enough now that we can pick a good rule, force the Fed to follow it, and that's a way that we can get both lawful and effective monetary policy. Basically, the Federal Reserve should have a lot less say over the goals that it should pursue. Uh, We still think that it should have a lot of say over how it achieves those goals, right? The tools that the Fed has at its disposal. 
But really, it's time that we rein in the Fed, make its mandate more specific, and reorient central banking so that it actually serves the common good. I think, um, I don't know who the, I think, is it Maxine Waters is in charge of the Fed right now? I mean, do we really want her making rules? Is that not a a flaw in your your argument? Is a person who doesn't understand economics mandating to the Fed how how to operate? She's on House Financial Services, right? And she might be the ranking member. And so, yeah, we are in the uncomfortable territory that the Federal Reserve is a statutory creature of Congress. We basically have no alternative to Congress telling the Fed what it's supposed to do. It has multiple times over the course of its history, right? The Federal Reserve Act of 1913 has been modified by Congress something like 200 times. So it's not like we have an independent Fed right now in terms of complete insulation from from Congress. When people talk about independent monetary policy, what they mean is we don't want Congress determining the day-to-day stance of monetary policy. We don't want Congress telling the Fed, hey, it's time to print more money or, hey, it's time to step on the brakes. We absolutely agree with that. That sort of political independence is good and appropriate and we should keep it. At the same time, We think it is also appropriate for the Fed to have another rule that more specifically binds it to pursue a specific course for monetary policy. Now, we don't actually say in the book that Congress should do this. What we do say is that whatever the rule is, it has to actually bind, which means that it can't simply be something that the Fed chooses for itself. Because a self-chosen rule really isn't a rule, right? If I choose the rule myself, I can also choose not to follow the rule. And in fact, that's exactly what's happened over the past 10 years. The Fed had a self-chosen 2% inflation target. It missed it. It consistently undershot it for over a decade. Well, I shouldn't say over a decade, about a decade. And there were no consequences for that. The Fed just sort of shrugged and said, our bad, we'll try try harder next time. Mm. And then everybody acts surprised when the market doesn't believe the Fed. Well, yeah, because you missed your own target for almost 10 years. So in order to improve the efficacy and credibility of monetary policy, right, those two things are very important going together. I think that we need some way of handing the Fed a rule that it itself does not choose. And that can make monetary policy more predictable, predictable, more generally beneficial and more non uh, less discriminatory in its effects for the average American. My personal opinion, which is not in the book, but I think that I'm on pretty solid ground here, is that the only place that that rule can come from is Congress. So I personally would like to see Congress make the Federal Reserve's mandate more specific and focus more on narrow monetary conditions rather than this sort of broad, vague thing that they got going on right now. Yeah, something I've been struggling with, you know, being a libertarian and not wanting government, um, I want a stronger Congress. You know, the, 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 the political sphere in what you just outlined, like a stronger Congress and outsourcing less to the executive branch. Make Congress great again. It really, right. Like, get rid of the FDA and the CDC and all the, you know, like, and all, ah. Anyway, so, um, Harry, I, I just heard the uh, explanation of what's in his book, and it sounds impure because I didn't hear end the Fed one single time in anything he just said. And no end the Fed, no audit the Fed. Right. I didn't hear gold. Uh, Alexander, what's wrong with you? 
So what we actually did is we put it in like a crypto puzzle inside the book. If you combine <laughs> the first word in each chapter, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> what, we're doing, what we're doing for the purposes of this book is trying to make monetary policy a little bit better at the margin. Do I think that we even need the Federal Reserve to get economic stability? No, I don't. I think that there are plenty instances of what you might call free banking throughout history, uh, most notably Scotland in the 19th century, Canada for all of its history until they created a central bank in the 1930s. We know that we can do okay without a central bank. In fact, we know that we can do better without a central bank than with the central bank. But guess what? The Federal Reserve System is the system we have. It's not going anywhere. So what we want to do with this book is try and make it work better for ordinary Americans. Can I I, I want to ask something, and I, I apologize in putting you in this uncomfortable position, but I've never read Creature from Jekyll Island or In the Fed by Ron Paul, like... What is your evaluation, you know, or, or the Rothbard books on the Fed? Um, like, what has the Fed done to our money? Like, what is your critique? Like, for a person who doesn't know a lot about this, like, do you have critiques of those books that I ought to keep in mind as I kind of, like, read through some of the, the like, libertarian anti-Fed canon? Yeah, I just think that there are way better works out there. Uh, I came to free banking and monetary freedom through Murray Rothbard, guys like Mont Ron Paul. So I can't, uh, I can't bash them too harshly. At the same time, those kinds of books, the books like uh, A Creature from Jekyll Island, The Creature from Jekyll Island, they really just don't get the history right and they don't get the consequences of what the Federal Reserve has done right. There are much better monetary histories out there. Uh, Alan Meltzer has really, written a really good one. My dissertation advisor, Larry White, has written a really cool book called The Clash of Economic Ideas that does a good job of reviewing like some important macroeconomic debates over the 20th century. Um, what, what's really unfortunate is that we actually don't have a good popular level work about the Fed and monetary policy. Um, I just have so much concerns with the stuff that's out there in terms of trying to explain it to the average American that I think that it's just better off reading articles or pieces from the Wall Street Journal or National Review or The Hill or something like that, rather than delving into those books. Uh, as you could tell from my answers, I'm not a fan of 100% reserve banking. I don't buy the argument that anything uh, fractional reserve banking is fraud. I think that that just doesn't make any sense theoretically or historically. Uh, that's my answer. I don't, I don't think too highly of those works, and I, I would recommend alternative things uh, that you read in their place. Yeah, may I ask you for those titles, and I'll put those in the notes, and, and we're, we're always looking for, um, you know, for the, for the crowd that always kind of talks about, like, you know, we're, we're the edgy, anti-popular, like, no, what you just talked, Alan Metzler's book is the alternative. That's, that's the, not the status quo. So uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in... Um, uh, Reinhold has a couple more questions. So Reinhold in a suit with his long hair, just looking uh, debonair. Um, as my grandpa used to say, looking suave and deboner um, for suave and debonair. You got you got two questions before we got to wrap it up and move on to the new segment. Go ahead, Reinhold. Sure. First, um, the question I have is uh, you say that the, the – so. Congress gave the Fed the uh, mandates to to manage inflation and unemployment. Now, when it gave them that unemployment mandate, which was several decades after the initial you know, 1913 creation, aren't those two things at polar odds with each other? Good question. In monetary policy? So a lot of that depends on how you interpret like the underlying macroeconomics behind how the economy works. Mm -hmm. 
way back in the day when Keynesian economics, like in its first generation, was had dominated the academy. It was basically the only game in town. It was thought that there was a stable trade-off between inflation and unemployment, right? You could run the economy hot, in which case inflation would be low. I'm sorry, unemployment would be low and inflation would be high. Or you could step on the brakes a little bit, in which case you could bring down inflation, but only at the cost of higher unemployment, right? It was presumed that that was a stable, you know, downward sloping curve, a menu of choices. Uh, What we know now, thanks to the work of guys like Milton Friedman and Edmund Phelps and uh, Bob Lucas, is that that's just not true, right? In the long run, the economy has a natural rate of unemployment consistent with the full allocation of economic resources, independent of the inflation rate. So really, all you got to do is keep monetary conditions stable and predictable, and then markets will work their magic to fully employ those resources, right? So there's no actual long-run trade-off between inflation and unemployment. And you could even argue that there's really no argument. You could even argue that there's no reason that the Fed should specifically focus on unemployment, right? As long as it's focusing on price stability, basically keeping monetary conditions stable, monetary policy will have done all that it can do in order to lower unemployment. Okay. And and the other question I have is about the 1970s stagflation. Mm. Um, are we seeing a repeat of what caused that, or are we trying to prevent that from happening and then maybe recreating something even worse? I don't think that it's happening, and I don't think that we're there yet. Um, the reason I don't think that we're there yet is even though we're seeing inflation pick up a little bit in the 5% year-over-year range, Unemployment's pretty low, right? We're at what, four, four and a half percent, something like that. So if you take what's called the misery index, which is just the sum of the inflation and unemployment rates, that's less than 10%. What was it in the 1970s when Jimmy Carter was president in even the first year of Reagan's presidency in the early 80s? It was over 20%, right? So we're just nowhere near where we were in the 1970s. And because I think that we're going to continue to get a robust, robust recovery from the COVID recession, And I think that a lot of the stimulus programs that we're going to see have only transitory effects on prices. I just don't think that stagflation is in our future. That being said, never underestimate the incompetence of uh, policymakers, (laughs) right? You could always, you can always count on the president and Congress and the fed to mess things up. So you always have to have that little bit of doubt. Right. We're going to see a huge uptick in demand and economic activity. And it's just, I don't know, worrying to me, knowing what the Fed has been doing the last decade or two, uh, since it didn't learn its lessons in 2008, um, are they are going to be able to handle and manage the economy well enough during that huge boom to prevent it from going into a huge swing cycle? Yeah, demand is picking up right now, which is exactly why you see that inflation. What I think is going to happen is as we continue to recover on the supply side, as the economy's productive capacity continues to come back, revitalized from all the shutdowns and stuff that we had. It's more and more people get vaccinated as we approach that magical 70 to 80% number for the general population. You're going to see comparatively more goods and services for a given money supply or a given increase in the money supply. And so I think that that's going to mean that inflation is going to come down, right? At the beginning of the show, I said that inflation is caused by too much money chasing too few goods, Well, if the supply side of the economy picks back up and you got more goods and services being produced, if the Fed's doing what it's doing anyway, what you're naturally going to see is price increases start to cool off a little bit. That would be my best guess for where we are. Right. And that's one of the advantages of price increasing is that more and more people 
see an entry into the market to a market. So you have more competition coming in, chasing those higher dollars that they were up. Right. So that's where you see some of the better competition and technologies come into play in some of these industries, which will eventually bring the prices back down again. So, I mean, it's, it's a double-edged sword, I guess on that. Um, so I, that's really the, those are the questions I had after, cause I've been listening. So he, he was to, hiding to in the background. In. Um, so, and, 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 and and I'm not a boomer, and you owe me an apology for that one. So I will not apologize. You act like one. Boomer <laughs> is a state of mind, not an age. Um, <clears throat> you're not as bad as Jeremiah Morrill, but uh, I heard one. Um, I, I want you to paint a picture of me. Uh, uh, not of me. Draw me like one of your French girls, Alex. Uh, so I heard one po- libertarian podcast host say, we ought to just let all the prices deflate and go into the deflationary spiral and get to the real value of things and just take the pain now to avoid the hyperinflation in the future. Is that A, like a thing, right? Evaluate that from an economic perspective. And two, if that were the case, if it is, like what would that look like for the average person? Yeah, so let me see if I can parse that. Uh, so in economics, we distinguish between relative prices, right? You know, like the price of a hamburger compared to a hot dog and the price level, how expensive goods and services are in general. Resource allocation is guided by relative prices. Monetary, monetary conditions as set by the Federal Reserve can affect relative prices in the short run, but in the long run, all they really do is affect the purchasing power of money. So what that means is there's no one right purchasing power of the dollar. Even if you have a bunch of inflation, once things stabilize, uh, once the Federal Reserve stops running the printing presses, relative prices are going to sort themselves out and we can just continue to operate the economy just fine from that point. So I would say that we don't need severe demand side deflation in order to make things right, right? All we need to do is figure out, given the money supply and its rate of growth, what's the purchasing power of the dollar? And then we can use that as our yardstick for figuring out what relative prices are, right? The price of one good in dollars compared to another good in dollars. So I think the least bad thing is just to try and get the Fed to cease its emergency policies, its expansionary asset purchases, and then just continue business as usual from there. There's no one magic purchasing power of the dollar in terms of gold, in terms of goods and services in general. What we really are just looking for is good enough to get the economy operating. Okay, so if we stop the printing presses tomorrow, right, uh, and I may be oversimplifying, like what is the consequences of overprinting the money? If you overprint money, you're going to get inflation, right? And so the what you ideally want is neither overprinting nor underprinting. What matters is what is the Fed doing compared to what the market expects? If the market expects 2% inflation and the Fed is delivering 2% inflation, we're fine. Right. If the market expects zero inflation and the Fed's delivering zero inflation, we're fine. The most important thing for monetary policy is setting expectations and credibly committing to a predictable policy. Within that, there's a lot of wiggle room. You know, what do you want the growth rate of the purchasing? Well, the rate of decline of the purchasing power of the dollar to be right, because that's what inflation is. Two percent, four percent, zero percent. Really, in the long run, it doesn't matter that much. Right. What's important is that the Fed be credible that the market believe the Fed and that the Fed believe the market and that they operate in tandem with what the market expects versus what the Fed does. And frankly, the Fed does not deserve a lot of credit because they have not done a good job of credibly conveying to the market what the heck is going on. 
Well, when I am president uh, in 2078, I will be older than Joe Biden probably, but you will be my Can Fed I mark chairman. that on my calendar? Please, you will be my Fed chairman. I, I think I think we found him, uh, Reinhold and Harry. Uh, Alexander Salter, thank you so much. And make sure you go pick up his book, Money and the Rule of Law, Generality and Predictability in Monetary Institutions. Check out the show notes. Make sure you go follow him on Twitter at Alex W. Salter. Thank you so much for joining us. Chris, Harry, Reinhold, this has been great. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, and thank you. And uh, we will be right back after this break, and we will talk a little bit about the news. We're going to uh, talk about the January 6th commission getting killed and the lab leak. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Chris Spangle Show. My name is Chris Spangle. We're so happy to have you here. Um, my voice isn't going to make it. I, I have a relatively weak voice, uh, and I did two 40-minute episodes of the History of Modern Politics for patrons that will air in July. And uh, did that this morning, and then doing this show, and then after this, I've got two pat-downs. If you're not listening to the pat-down, the comedy podcast I'm on with Miss Pat, then you're, you're just you're losing out. It's hilarious. She's really funny. Um, I am marginal. But I've got two after this, right at two o'clock. So we're not going to spend too much time here on the news segment. But Reinhold, you look fantastic. Uh, you look like um, Fabio if every bee stung him on Earth. <laughs> a little swole, a little swole. But you know, some of that is muscle. Some of that is you know just gains. It's not all all fat. Harry, you know who he looks like. You know, you remember in Ghostbusters the painting. And the painting oh, comes uh, alive. Vigo. 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 You look like Vigo. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, he was great. I hope I hope people like understood it and it wasn't too over people's heads. I know that our Bitcoin episode, we got a little pushback going. I'm more confused now than I was before. So if you're in that crowd, I'd love to have your questions. I found uh, uh, another person to talk to about Bitcoin and we'd love to answer any questions. And, and same goes with that. Like if we do one of these explanation episodes and we're talking about some of this stuff and you something's not clear, send in an email and uh, send it to editor at wearelibertarians.com. It'll come to me or chris at chrisspangle.com. And uh, we'll we'll see if we can't get that answer questioned. Um, you know, if we miss something, I don't want fact checking. Um, but I will say, if you if you're still confused about something or we didn't do it right, let me know. Um, let's move on to the news. Uh, it, the Senate Republicans killed the January sixth commission. Uh, this is from the Washington Post. Um, and I believe it's an opinion piece by Philip Bump or whatever this nerd's name is. Uh, yeah, Philip Bump. And uh, he is he's a nerd. That's all I can say. Um, so it's clear that the majority of the House supports creating a bipartisan commission to investigate the attack on the U.S. Capitol that occurred on January 6th that passed a bill to do so earlier this month. It's clear that a majority of the Senate supports the commission's creation, too. Uh, more than 50 senators representing 32 states and well over half the country's population voted to move forward on doing so. And it's clear that a majority of the public also supports a commission. Polling has repeatedly demonstrated that, including a survey released this week. But there will be no such commission. That vote in the Senate aimed at ending a Republican filibuster of the proposal didn't hit the 60 vote mark. It got 54 to 19 more votes than the opposition. But that doesn't matter under the filibuster rules. Uh, 
that there were three votes for ending the filibuster for every vote to maintain it doesn't matter. It could have been a 59 to 0 vote and the commission would have still been blocked. In fact, 11 senators, nine of them Republicans, didn't bother to vote at all. It didn't matter. The commission to vote on Friday was aimed at ending the filibuster. It blocked that legislation. Um, the 60-vote margin only emerged in 1975, by the way. Before then, you needed to get two-thirds of the vote from senators who were present in the room. Remember uh, the, you know, when Rand Paul became a hero and talked for 24 hours? Remember uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington? That changed in 1975. Before then, you needed two-thirds of the vote from the senators in the room. Were every senator there, that's the same 67-vote margin as required in the impeachment vote. But that would have meant two-thirds of the 89 senators voting, which meant 60 votes. So long story short, it's all, it's all senators, not just those present now. Now, there's nothing in the Constitution about the filibuster. It just is Senate rules. Um, three of the 11 senators that didn't vote, um, two Democrats and a centric, uh, Senator Patrick Toomey, a Republican from Pennsylvania, had expressed support for creating the commission. Um, had all absent senators shown up and cast the ballot, it still would have been 57 to 43. Um, but it got killed. Now, listen, I thought that Donald Trump's stolen election narrative was bullcrap from the moment he started talking about it, like in 2016. Because before a vote was ever cast, Donald Trump was saying the election was stolen. It was all bullshit, like everything Donald Trump says. But... Because I know I'm not the only person in the world, and there are people with many different thoughts, I said publicly and on the show, we should absolutely have Donald Trump file in every single court he wants to. And if there is evidence, let his lawyers go and try that. And let's do discovery. Let's have the whole conversation, right? Because I knew my position was right, and it would be borne out through that, scru- that, that process, Uh, and even though I thought it was a complete waste of taxpayer time and Donald Trump's time, 60 lawsuits went ahead. There was never any, any evidence of it. If I were a Republican and I didn't think anything happened on January 6th, that was significant. I, I would think that you'd take the same tactic, right? Well, yeah, if nothing happened, that was wrong. Let's just have the conversation. Let's, let's do the process, right? But that's not what Republicans want. Republicans either want to pretend that this wasn't that bad or want to pretend that this didn't happen or want to pretend that it's the opposite and Antifa was there and they don't want to bear responsibility. But the problem is they will bear responsibility for the rest of time um, and this will never go away. And this was uh, an extremely – just like Republicans, you will never let go of Portland and uh, Wendy's burning last summer – Those of us who are on the opposite side of this will never let it go. And people like Jim Banks here in Indiana will never get my vote for anything because he just pretended that it was no big deal and it didn't happen. And Donald Trump, you know, the the consequences, I hope at some point, Reinhold, will catch up to Republicans for for this, even if they wanted to avoid this commission, which should have happened because not for nothing, there would have been a lot in it that helped Republicans like the D.C. mayor and the and the security. And I think it's perfectly reasonable for a lot of people to think, OK, well, Glenn Beck's rallies and all the tea parties that happened were all very, you know, milk toast. And like, what's the worst that can happen? Right. Like Republican rallies 
historically in the Tea Party have been very mostly peaceful. Um, so, but they don't want like. Do you and I can, can we honestly sit here and say that, like having done this podcast for ten years, and I was in politics ten years before I started this politi- this, this political podcast, and I've been in movements and Tea Parties and local politics and the Libertarian Party. You get a lot of intelligence, and people tell you a lot of things because you have a voice. Do we all really believe that, like, Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller and people around the president didn't know about the chatter about what was going to happen? Uh, but they don't want that stuff to be found out. I mean, that's the, really – they don't want people to know the truth, uh, and they don't want to have the conversation about what actually took place and who's responsible. And even if those responsible are the uh, opposition – um, you can tell I'm tired because I'm starting to ramble, Reinhold. Go ahead. You you each get one one comment on this story before we move on to the next one. Go ahead, Reinhold. Um, so one comment, which is going to be three parts. The <laughs> the there uh, there should be a commission. Uh, they don't want it because they're going to they don't want to give uh, subpoena power. They don't want to give any of that you know real power to the investigative body to find out what's going on. They say that there's all these other um, people looking into it. We should just let them do their job. Well, that's never stopped them before when they were in charge, they, you know, investigated uh, Obama for six and a half years for, uh, you know, the fast and furious. So, and Benghazi. So I don't, I don't think it's that they, um, I just think it's more that they know that it's going to damage them, so they don't want to have it, have that ha- happen. McConnell was going around asking people not to vote f- to to not break the filibuster in order to um, for a personal favor for to him. He was he's trading personal favors for this. This is how important it was to them to to keep this from going through. And what I really hate is that if this really were a, a filibuster. They wouldn't be able to do anything until this was cleared. Not that they just didn't they just didn't break the filibuster, but what you have now is you have a you have table filibusters where you can have somebody say, I'm going to filibuster, everybody agrees that they have done it, they table it and get on with other business. Right? It used to be that the filibuster would stop all other business from happening while the filibuster was going on. And that would force people to come together and and come up to a compromise or, or do something. Right. Um, but now they don't have to do that. It just kills the bills. And I think that's a, a horrible change that I've been yelling about for decades on the, on that rule that they have in the Senate. And they need to change that back because somebody somewhere is finally going to get tired and want to get something through. And it may be this, it may be this Senate. I don't know. It may be the next Senate, maybe the next Republican Senate finally decides it wants to do something. So it's going to change the rules, but somebody needs to change something because Stuff like this is going to continue happening. Um, and I, I like the idea of the filibuster. I really do. Um, but I think it needs to be a limited tool, limited by the fact that you have to actually get up and filibuster for that period of time. You can't just pretend and w- make it go away and move on. Right? So that's, that's my uh, comment on that. Harry, I know you're not the political one of us. Do you have any comments you'd like to make? The best part about it, right, is when McConnell goes like, "Well, they only want to do this this investigation, you know, for political reasons." Like, oh, so like you're just like Reinhold was saying, like, so your investigations that you're doing for Obama for those 
few years. While I did did enjoy those, it was just for political reasons. Is this the only reason you did any of those goofy investigations right. where no one went to jail? You just felt like subpoenaing in people. Yeah, we need to know every detail in multiple Benghazi, but uh, you know, a literal violent attack on our on our capital. We can't. We just don't have time. I mean, they're acting in very predictable ways, Harry. But you well, know, they're they politicians. They're all losers. Well, yeah, but they could have also like spun this too, like to help themselves out to say, like, you know what, this is yes, it happened in this federal building. We definitely need to uh, investigate this because this has happened on our property, so we need to investigate because the local authorities can't do this because this is D.C. That's why it's not at state because it's our building, you know. But then that argument will probably get struck back again about making D.C. a state, and no one wants that, right? I, I guess um, I'm waiting for them to do something goofy like let's just move the capital to somewhere nice and sunny. <laughs> I, I, this just really kind of exposed uh, exposes something that we said about the right and their response to the violent riots over the that summer. It's not that they. Uh, it seems like a lot of conservatives are not actually worried about violence, and their principle is not anti-violence. It's they're mad that they can't do violence too. <laughs> and so it kind of undermines all of the talk of the, the previous summer where the, the, they're saying violence is wrong. It should never take place. But then when violence happened on their own side, it's, it's, we got to pretend that got to do everything to not talk about it instead of just saying, no, this is fucked up and wrong. And we should, we, we should say that it's wrong. Um, and it just sort of shows that you don't actually care about the principle of nonviolence. You actually just don't like the double standard and the the hypocrisy of the left not being accountable and the right being held accountable more. Um, that's not a good principle. I should I should be able to be violent too. Is not a, I don't want to live in a society with you, right? Like <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't sell libertarianism and voluntary exchange when you're arguing that my side should be able to do violence too. You're actually undercutting the entire argument of what makes libertarianism work, which is peaceful cooperation. So just uh, listen. Trumpism is a gateway to statism. There's this idiot uh, who I guess works for the Federalist, which often has a lot of like really libertarian positions on things. Um, His name is David Marcus, and he wrote in Fox News, nobody is checking the social media fact checkers. It's time that changed. And just listen to this one quote from the article. So what can be done about this dangerous situation? Basically saying that the the fact checkers basically are considered the truth and their truth isn't my truth and therefore it's dangerous. A new bill before the Michigan House of Representatives is a move in the right direction. The bill would require fact checkers to register with the government and carry insurance to cover payments to those who suffer financial damages as a result of a bogus fact check. That is statism. <laughs> that is, there's no other word for it. But I'm sure there are a lot of right libertarians listening going, I, I agree, we need to get this fact checkers under control. It doesn't matter. It's, it's like the ACLU didn't want to support Skokie, Illinois Nazis, but you have to support the Nazis who want to do a parade or the Klan or whatever because it's about the principle. 
You know, Ravi Sav talks a lot in reason about critical race theory and free speech and blah, 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 right? Well, you know, and sometimes it gets a little predictable. But he wrote an article this week saying uh, the, the Hannah Nicole Jones, who did the 1619 Project, should have had the ability to work at Duke and shouldn't have been canceled. And cancel culture was wrong because we should support free speech. So even though he's diametrically opposed to her on a lot of stuff, he's supporting the principle of free speech. And that's how it ought to be. You have to, you can't, you don't have principles if you don't, aren't in, you don't have principles if you're not put in uncomfortable positions while defending them. Uh, so and kudos to, to Robbie. Thing, you know, the funny thing is there too, is that it's such a news item because he did that because nobody else is doing it. Yeah. Who complains about the same things, right? Yeah. Complains about cancel culture and we shouldn't, we should be able to talk about this subject. We should be able to talk about that subject. Oh, but we need to make it a law that you can't teach critical race theory in school and you can't talk about racism and you can't talk about this. You can't talk about that. It's like, weren't you the ones who want to talk about Holocaust denial and, and whether it's valid or not and race realism, but Oh, the minute we talk about something that you don't like, you want to silence it. Yeah. Libertarians are supposed to be principled, not, just puppets for one of the two major political movements uh next story the coronavirus lab leak theory jumps haha from mocked to maybe as biden orders intelligence review that's the headline in the washington post in the spring of 2020 as the coronavirus ripped through the u.s cities uh on its way to claiming more than 592,000 american lives a group of senior citizens, senior U.S. national security officials warily eyed a laboratory in Wuhan, China. The Wuhan Institute of Virology was well known in the scientific community for its research on coronaviruses to defend against outbreaks like the SARS epidemic, first identified in China in 2002. But to some officials, some of whom worked in the State Department and the White House, the lab's location in the same city where the coronavirus pandemic began was a troubling coincidence. Over the course of the pandemic, the officials joined forces searching for information that might show whether the pandemic had been sparked by reckless or sloppy research in the lab. Several several of the now former officials and others aware of their work said in interviews. Throughout much of the pandemic, the lab leak hypothesis has been ridiculed by scientists as a baseless conspiracy theory fueled by Trump in an effort to deflect attention from his administration's botched pandemic response. Far from dismissing the lab leak theory, however, President Biden has told his spies to see if they can validate it. Um, The White House was recently told that a large amount of information retained to be examined could shed light on the question. Biden secured stunned, stunned security and health experts on Wednesday when he announced that at least one element of the intelligence community leans more toward a lab accident as the outsource of the break, as opposed to a natural transference of a virus from an animal to a human, like the the bat. National security officials in the Trump administration have scoured classified intelligence data, scientific pacer, papers, and even popular magazine articles to determine if the lab leak hypothesis held water. Um, now, obviously, it's in the same place as the outbreak, and there, the, the Chinese government's response to the outbreak is kind of what raised a lot of alarms, right? They seemed more interested in blocking investigations than aiding them. Uh, they had to, they had moved to silence doctors and journalists. I love that they say silenced instead of killed doctors and journalists from reporting on the spread of the virus, which had appeared to first show up in the hospital patients in Wuhan. 
Across the globe, uh, people began speculating about the source of the virus shortly after it emerged. Um, the evidence that the virus may have emanated from the Wuhan lab is, is circumstantial. But the former official stressed their, their default assumption, one of them added, which was shared by most scientists, was the pandemic had begun in nature. But in the fall of 2020, momentum picked up again. The intelligence community had obtained information that three workers at the Wuhan lab had fallen ill in November 2019 with symptoms similar to COVID, which had sent them to the hospital. Their symptoms were also similar to seasonal illnesses, including the flu, but they'd gotten sick in the month before the initial cases of the disease were confirmed in Wuhan. Officials had also come upon information that the Chinese military had been conducting experiments at the lab for years, which is not something that people know. Um, so three, three points here, right? The report of the sick workers, the lab's history of research on coronaviruses and bats, and finding that the lab had been secretly engaged in classified research, including laboratory animal experience on behalf of the Chinese military since 2017. Now that's from a State Department fact sheet on January 15th. Um, so, uh, I have, I never poo-pooed it. Um, I always thought that there was uh, a really good chance the Chinese weren't telling us the truth because the reality is if it just starts in nature, then the Chinese aren't going to be held accountable. If it's a bioweapon, why release it on your own people first, right? But if you're liable because all of a sudden you're responsible for the the leak of the virus in Wuhan well then all of a sudden there's consequences and i think we i think the point i'd like to make about this story is joe biden what i don't want this to be used for a lot of people on the right and libertarians will cheer this see we were right the media was wrong and we're yay don't give this too much energy because this is the kind of stuff that will be used in two to five years for sanctions and other acts of war against China. So don't be a useful idiot in Joe Biden's effort to increase militarism against Asia and China specifically. Um, so that, that's all I'd like to say. I mean, Harry, what were your thoughts when you saw that this may be validated and Joe Biden of all people gave it fresh energy? Uh the first thing that came to mind because how fast the narrative changed. Um, it went from that one medium article and then all of a sudden overnight, boom, everything was switched over. I think like I first came across it with just like a meme um, when I, uh, I was up at, I was up early in the morning and just looking at memes and it's like, what is this? New? Oh, the lab leak meme. What is this? That's old meme. Oh, uh, right. Old. Like, oh, no. Oh, no. Isn't it kind of it isn't it kind of funny to watch people on both extremes of this, like the super pro lockdown people and the super anti lockdown people discover new facts. But they're things mm -hmm. that you read in April of 2020 because you were just trying to keep an open mind. It's mm -hmm. funny yeah, because they didn't. And then, then they're like, oh, this is a, this is interesting. Yeah, this is new. We just heard about this. Hey, did you know about the person that was leaked? This is just was died. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And the hospital they were building looked more like a, um, I don't know, a camp to keep people right. talking. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, um, the, the it was just also a lot of coincidences like like even like the time like when that leak like information was coming out people were like we're mapping out like this is what like even if it didn't come from that lab right people would keep they think um no 
that whole area in Wuhan where, where the wet market's at and how close it is to the lab and where everything else is at. And the fact that it also happened around Chinese New Year where everyone was at home visiting and moving yeah. back from. That's so was like, oh, this is bad. This is really, really bad. And not having the testing or just like just communication from, from their government. You know, it's like, okay, like even if it doesn't come to the lab, just, just, you're not, we're not going to get any, I don't believe any other information they're going to get from it because of like, they're also liable for like trying to keep it under wrap and try to keep it quiet. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't think we'll ever know. And they're, they're going to make sure that we don't know. Reinhold, your thoughts? Uh, my thoughts is I think a lot of people are reading into this a um, admission that this is what happened when it really doesn't read that way. What it says is that one section of the intelligence community thinks this. Mm-hmm. It's possible. The others don't. They need to find out what's going on. So, yeah, it may be that. It may be that that's how this happened. But it doesn't – I don't see the evidence that it is – that that's the case at this point, right? And you saying we we are, we won't know, but that the, the Chinese government is going to keep stuff from us no matter what. Um, the, the previous outbreak like this with SARS mm-hmm. uh, came from nature, the – the 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 1918 flu came from nature. These were nature uh, natural um, mutations of a specific virus that uh, that expanded and become very very dangerous. Uh, so there was no reason to think that this wasn't what happened here either. But there are a lot of people who are pointing to some coincidences that may or may not be the be the pointing evidence to one side or the other of that, right? The, I think the SARS was was from a wet bat or an open meat market. He said bat. And that's why the they he said bat. <laughs> B-A-T. Yeah. But I think it's it's from, you know, yeah. from that market is how that happened. So I think that's why they assumed it from this one. But there was never anybody saying that it was coming from the market. But it should it could have still come from nature. So it's still something that um, mutates. And, and when they look at the the. Uh, the DNA of the of the virus, not not DNA, but you know the the gen- genetic makeup of the virus. They could see that it charts as a mutation from a previously known one. So it's not like it's, you know, something that was mutated, mutated, mutated several times in a lab, and it's some sort of weird new strain. It is kind of a makes sense that it was from an from a nature type of thing, but that doesn't mean it didn't do that in the lab. And then got released in you know from the lab. That, I'm not saying that it is or isn't that. I just think that a lot of people are seeing headlines that are obviously written in a way to make people believe one thing or the other, and they're just jumping on it, and going well, without really the, trying to understand. That's, that's, that's going to be the thing about this. Um, everybody is going to look for the it, through the recaps of this as we spend the next few years unpacking everything that happened. And everybody is going to see in it what what validates what they said, right? Like, I don't know. I, I just hate all of it. It's if you if you believe the same thing about COVID that you believed in March eighteenth of twenty twenty, then you're a fool, right? <laughs> like, be it this is this is nineteen eighteen and we're all gonna die, or if you're on the other side that this is all a fake hoax, like you're you're just dumb, right? Like five hundred ninety two thousand people died. It's a very serious thing. It's a it's a disease that we we should have taken seriously, but not allowed the government to take the amount of freedom. Like I I just I had a conversation with somebody yesterday, 
And like this person is here in Indiana and they had no clue what's going on in some of these eastern coast states or California. Like they have no concept of how bad the lockdowns are and how little impact these lockdowns had on the actual virus, right? You know, and they, they, this person is somebody that like really takes COVID seriously and they were just like, they can't get haircuts. Like, yeah. And then look at the numbers. So, but by, you know, at the same token, like I read another article this week about a guy who won't even take his mask off during sex. You know, he, he's not, he's only left the house to get vaccinated. And you're just like, do you not see like the other half of the country walking around living like a normal life? Like, I don't know. Everybody just got everything mostly wrong, <laughs> you know, uh, but nobody wants to learn anything and be humble and say, yeah, I got that wrong or I got that right. Or, you know, it's, it's yeah. just crazy. Right. And it's okay to be wrong. I think the, I, I'm hoping what I'm sure opening a lot of people are getting out of it is that people freaked out. People did things out of fear, but see how slow government's response was yep. to new data. And that's the biggest issue. Yeah. And that's why like we needed, you know, like because businesses were quick to shut down, right? Be on their own, just like you you've said multiple times, like businesses did it first. Okay. Like, well, nope, go home. We have no idea what's going on. Go home. They're not going to want the liability. The NBA and the NCAA didn't want the liability. But now we're here a year later and I'm going to the largest sporting event, the largest gathering of people. It's gonna be three hundred thousand people at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway tomorrow for the Indy five hundred. And you know what's gonna happen? Not much. There may be some infections. There may be some sickness. It's all outdoors. Like, it's probably not going to happen, but we flew 110,000 people into Indianapolis and had almost no cases. A couple people died, but, like, one guy showed up with it, and then, you know, it's kind of like on you. Like, don't. Anyway, so the reality is we're down to one to two deaths in Indiana a day. That's a far cry from five, eight, a thousand deaths a day in our state, in our local area. Um, you know, we're one or two, like, so the risk of a nine 11 every day versus a, a lot less people dying because the vaccine worked, it, it, your calculation is much different. And if you're still like wearing a mask while having sex, because you're so afraid, that's not good. Like even slate where I read this article on the dear Polly or whatever, it was like their dear, you know, their dear Abby. And the lady was like, you need to see a therapist. Because you're crazy. And I was like, even Slate is calling some of these people crazy. <laughs> um, no, so, Slate didn't call them crazy. No, they absolutely call them crazy. <laughs> you should read the article. It's hilarious. They're like, oh, the whole thing is like, you need to go get counseling. And, you know, but it's it's just sad to see that people internalize the fear and, and stopped allowing themselves to be mentally flexible. You know, and on the other end, it's like, you know, I see a lot of don't trust the experts, don't trust the experts. It's you know, Michael Olsterholm said, you know, I think I think 800,000 people worldwide are going to die from this by the end of the year. We wildly blew past that prediction on Joe Rogan in March, right? Um, what lawmakers do, like experts don't have lawmaking power. Like somehow libertarians have, have made it about science and experts as opposed to the people who carry the, the force of government. And their bad deeds. Like, I just think it's kind of a, I don't know. I just hate talking about it because, but I think we're at a point now where people are less, less amped up about it. And I don't know. It just, per usual, I hate everybody. 
Um, speaking of vaccines, we talked last week about the um, the vaccine, uh, manda- the mandated thing at, at IUPUI, my school. Um, that They're backtracking. And here's what you need to understand about a society ruled by public opinion. People make a declarative, uh, institutions or businesses make a declarative statement. And that is a trial balloon because they want to see how much pushback. And I said this last week. Am I an anti-vaxxer? No. Do I think I need to speak up now? Yes, because everything is a trial balloon. And we're at a point now, like I told this person yesterday, I go, I know you're uncomfortable around people not wearing masks, but if you don't go back to normal now, then the people who have real power will never let you go back to normal. Like, you have to be uncomfortable, and you have to push. Like, it was uncomfortable for me to put my mask on in August. It was, like, and not for nothing. I didn't wear a mask till August, like most people. Like, we went most of this without wearing masks. Like, so everybody calm down now that you're vaccinated. Um, And and you're going to be uncomfortable taking your mask off now. But people just, you're going to have to be a little uncomfortable. But we're going back to normal, whether everyone wants to or not. Um, And you got to push. Because IU, IU pushed this trial balloon to see what they would get, to see if they could get away with it. And they're not. So, Indiana University reconsidering vaccine verifications for students. In yesterday's opinion, the Attorney General, Todd Rakita, the first politician I ever volunteered for, by the way, uh, affirmed that it is legal for us to require a vaccine, including one under an emergency use authorization. His opinion questioned specifically the manner in which we gather proof of vaccination. Although we disagree with that portion of his opinion, we will consider our process for verifying the requirement. The school said the move to reconsider comes just one day after State Attorney General Todd Rakita slammed the rule, saying it violates state law. This session, members of the Indiana General Assembly passed legislation to codify in a law a prohibition on COVID-19 vaccine passports, preventing public institutions from mandating proof of vaccination as a condition for receiving services or employment. Rakita said, Indiana University's policy clearly runs afoul of state law and the fundamental liberties and freedoms in this legislation were designed to protect. Multiple state Republican state senators also condemned the university's new policy with 35 out of 39 signing a letter sent to university president Michael McRobbie. Um, Just like we said in that article from the New York Times last week, it's very dangerous to do that. Now, I am a lifelong IU fan. My grandfather went to IU. We loved Bobby Knight. Uh, and our arch enemy is Purdue. <sighs> but my beloved Mitch Daniels is, uh, is head of Purdue and has made it very hard for me to accept that Purdue should exist as a college because he's doing so many good things. And his, his solution to this was the old golden ticket vaccination drawing. For 10 Boilermakers, COVID, the COVID-19 vaccination will be a golden ticket to winning $9,992, the equivalent of a year's undergraduate tuition cost for an in-state Boilermaker since 2013, minus the hunt for chocolate bars. 10 students who submit valid proof that they are fully vaccinated against COVID-19 by July 15th will be randomly selected and announced by July 29th. Everyone who goes to the college is eligible to enter to win. July 15th is the date that I was told that I had to be vaccinated or I would be kicked out of school. At Purdue, they're doing a lottery. At Purdue, they're going to get 90% compliance. 
at IU, they're going to be forced to choose whether or not they really want to fire 10 to 30% of their workforce and be open to lawsuits and liability. And my contract that I have with you as an employee doesn't say I have to be vaccinated. So you're in breach of contract as, as a tenured professor. So let's go to court. And as a public university, our taxpayers in Indiana will be forced to fight it. Which was the better strategy? The heavy hand or the old golden ticket vaccination drawing, Reinhold? You're, you're muted or I'm muted. Harry, what do you think? I'm muted. I'm going to go with the golden ticket because like that, that's going to work. People like drawings and this is the – they're going to do that. You're right. You're going to get – well, IE is going to get 100% but they're going to be low on resources and it's going to be very hard for them to even know they've got a hundred percent lose a bunch of students, lose, lose a bunch of workforce. Yeah. They'll have a hundred percent, but they'll be down five, 10, 20. How many? Correct. And, and if you lose too much support staff, yeah, you can, you don't even know if you have a hundred percent because of the person who's supposed to count that up and process those reports is it going to come to work now? And, and you got and, rid of them. Like I can't, I can't even go to online school without my vaccine. Like we know. Okay, all right. right. It, yeah. It's just and, silly. And, and, and the epidemiologically, and but not for nothing. Like if let's say ninety percent of the people sitting in a classroom are vaccinated, the the R not value that we talked so much about last year is so low. Like. Going this heavy-handed and opening yourself up to so many different consequences was just really foolish on their part. Yeah, yeah, and and with the job market the way it is, once you've got rid of these people, other schools and companies are going to swoop these people up, and schools are going to swoop those people mm-hmm. up. Because if you've gotten out at IU, if let's say just two years in, you're two years in, right? You get two more years to go, dude. You you take those two those two credits to WGU, you probably be out in a year. Yeah. I mean, what like IUPUI is in the middle of Indianapolis, like downtown. Bloomington mm-hmm. is its own little standalone community down at IU. Are you going to force the whole town to get vaccinated? <laughs> like, it, it just doesn't make any sense because you've got people who are unvaccinated walking through your campus who are interacting with your students at restaurants. And, like, it, it's yeah. it, it's... It, it's like I, I swear to God, Reinhold. I know you may may or may not disagree with me, but it just it's uh, this is what's right. This is the sacrament. You will take it or else. Right. I mean, how do, what what I understand is how do you expect people to do the right thing if you're not forcing them to do it? Right? <laughs> Unless you're not having somebody with a gun to their head making them do it, how can you expect them to do the right thing? They they won't. They're children. They don't know. What 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 exactly. they're doing? So we have to kind of make them follow the rules, right? Is that, isn't that how it works? I saw something. <laughs> it was from the daily. I saw works. something from the Daily Show yesterday, and it's just typical of this attitude. You know, talking to some woman, and the 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 guy was like, the correspondent was like, "Why did you get the vaccine? What'd you get? Did you get a donut? Did you get free money? What'd you get?" Uh, I just wanted to help my neighbors. And I wanted to protect myself and be safe. Oh, but you could have held out and gotten some money. Like, it, just so dismissive and, and t- like, ah, uh, just rub me the wrong. I like, ah. Uh, hey, hey. Like, Myers giving out $10 gift cards. Well, so what? <laughs> $10, big deal. $9,992. Let's talk. I'm in. 
<laughs> full, a full semester tuition or whatever was it one semester or two semesters it was uh equivalent a year's tuition cost for an in-state boilermaker since 2013 which i love in their press release they say that tuition hasn't been raised since 2013 like they snuck that in which is one of his achieving uh, biggest achievements is not raising tuition at purdue for almost 10 years yeah. um, and i'm sure nobody this wasn't you know the, the 15th of july wasn't in any way written to coincide with anything that another school might have been right i mean my tuition i think it's probably about two thousand more than than purdue's at iupy so yeah it's funny mitch daniels if you don't know anything about mitch daniels please go uh podcast i produce called leaders and legends uh we did two interviews with mitch daniels um all through that podcast people talk about how brilliant he was i mean he just is a Amazing politician, amazing president of a school, uh, free market, Milton Friedman. You know, when he was head of OMB under Bush, he was just, he was called the blade because he was just slashing everything. Uh, you know, there's like one thing that would get me to, get to switch. To run. To, uh, there's one thing that would get, get him to run 2012. Wasn't yep. It? Yes. He, he, he thought about it. Um, I've heard privately oh, he, he thought about running in 12, which is why Pence oh, didn't run in 12, but decided he couldn't win. So he didn't do it. Um, and I'm telling you. Mitch Daniels running for president. I mean, when I was executive director of the Libertarian Party of Indiana, when he was governor, we never did a state of the state address against what he said because it was always libertarian. So it's like, you know, the state chair would call me and be like, do we have an address? I'm like, what am I going to say against it? Like, as a party, I can't just go, yeah, we agree. Otherwise, what's the point of us? (laughs) Right? Like, the whole, all eight state of the state addresses were like, yeah, let's get rid of government. Like, who will build the roads? Well, he ripped off a Spanish company and sold the toll roads, which is why if you drive through Indiana, all of our roads are horrible and being ripped up because we have brand new interstates because of the interest from the $700 million whatever payment from the Spanish. And then the value tanked right after that. So he's always like, who will build the roads? Ripping off the Spanish will build the roads. Um, so yeah, Mitch, if you don't know what's going on at, like Mitch Daniels created, um, a, a school choice Mecca here, you know, the Friedman foundation is located here. You have all kinds of like, we have charter schools started in Indiana in the major city with a democratic mayor starting them. Um, like you want to take free market principles and putting them into play. Daniels has been on the forefront of that. So, um, Good for you, Purdue. I'm not going to say that I like Purdue. I will not do it. My grandparents are still alive. I don't want to get disowned because I, you know, I love them. But all right, we have come to the end. Thank you so much for joining us, Harry Reinhold. Thank you for being here. No problem. Anything you wanted to weigh in on before we go? Um, other than that, Reinhold looks like a hippie with a court date right now. <laughs> Did you get caught with a dime bag? What's what's going on with your hair? You, you have a court a, a desk appearance for flipping off a cop or what? Oh, you know, if I told you all the stories, you wouldn't believe half of them. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate you uh, joining us here on the program, and we will see you again next Saturday. Next Saturday, we've got. Uh, we're talking uh, with Jason Bassler of Police the Police, talking about policing uh, reforms. And uh, so get your questions. If you've got questions about policing reform and, you know, we're, we didn't hit the uh, year anniversary of George Floyd, but, 
don't worry, nothing's going to change by next week either. So uh, we will we will give you some uh, good conversation next week. Tune in ten fifteen next Saturday on YouTube or Twitch, um, and then you can watch the broadcasts later on at WeAreLibertarians.tv on Odyssey. We are now on Odyssey, we are on Rumble, and we are on BitChute. So uh, just expanding your viewing options and trying to move away from Facebook and YouTube. So thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you again next week.